Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. All right, we are up. All right, so Danny, Danny Beers, good to see you. Sort of see you again. We've got you in green alien form. So kind of, <laughs> there's some sort of a camera camera mischief there. Now you told me that it might have been the fact that you you walked by some vegan food or some vegan food got you and it turned you green. So we're not sure how to how to how to process this. But welcome. Uh, for you guys who don't know Danny, Danny, I met Danny uh, had me up at the U.S. Cattlemen's Association uh, uh, convention, producers convention back in, I think, September of this year up in Billings, Montana. And uh, Danny is a longtime cattle rancher out of South Dakota and used to be the president of that organization, U.S. Cattlemen's Association. So she's got a lot of insight into this stuff. And I know you wanted to talk a little bit about, among other things, the the sort of synthetic meat uh, that's being proposed, uh, sort of that quote-unquote lab meat or or cell culture meat, we can talk about that. But tell us a little bit about yourself, Danny, and uh, we'll get going. Okay. Well, we ranch and farm on the North Dakota, South Dakota border. And uh, I've, I guess I grew up uh, in the cattle business and we've just uh, continued that um, after we got married and settled in and grew the ranch. And um, that's just, that's what we do. I don't know, my cousin, uh, somebody said the other day, well, don't you guys ever sell your cows? And he said, no, we're just kind of married to them. And that's what it feels like. It's, it's a pretty cold day and nobody wants to go outside, but the rest of the family's out feeding right now. So let me, so yeah, I guess in South Dakota in January, it's pretty chilly right now. So the cows are out there. So, so you guys are, you guys are uh, taking care of the animals. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting because people, don't have a, a real concept of, of, you know, it's 20, it's 24, seven, 365 day a year job that you, you know, these animals have to be cared for. And uh, I think a lot of people don't even realize, well, they have no idea how their food's produced and stuff. And we see that, uh, you know, I saw this morning that uh, some vegan activists were paying uh, some people on a ship to intentionally abuse animals so they could film that. And I know as a producer, uh, you, you, some people try to lump you into that category. What are your thoughts on that sort of, uh, that sort of business there and how, how the animal, uh, you know, how, how sort of animal agriculture is portrayed, uh, in this propaganda that we, that we hear about so often. I, I always found it really confusing and, and really conflicting. And I, I just have never understood, uh, why they, they want so badly to portray, um, people that care for food animals in that light and I guess that's probably what you're talking about today shows the extremes they're willing to go to and I think it's I just think it's really sad that that they don't um view the the way we grow food animals as as a benefiting to all human beings and I think if if they 
kind of got out of the way and let let things roll, I think we probably have even more technology and way to um, use animals to human benefit in a good way. I don't think it'd be uh, abusive at all. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I think it, it probably depends on the scale at which you're looking at some of this stuff. I mean, if you're, if you're, if we're looking at an organization or a group of people who are um, dead set on, you know, putting animals at the same level as humans in terms of uh, uh, their sentience and just well-being, uh, it's, it's, you know, easy enough to think of why you would maybe justify doing something like that, although it, it, it gets into some really murky waters when you're paying people to harm animals, which you are also trying to protect. I guess you'd look at that as a, you know, a few must get hurt in order for many to survive sort of a thing. But um, it is, you know, one of the reasons we like to have um, folks like yourself on the show, Danny, is because, you know, you can go on YouTube, you can go on, you know, all these different internet sites and, and dig up horror stories about almost anything you want to. And, uh, you know, cattle, cattle ranching and stuff, it certainly hasn't avoided that farming in general certainly hasn't avoided that. So we like to kind of hear it from the folks who are actually out there doing that kind of what is more or less kind of the routine or the day to day life of a farmer or a rancher, as well as kind of what's the day to day life of some of the animals that they're caring for, because uh, it sometimes highlights exactly kind of what the process is, is actually like from, you know, calf to, to the end. Right. Yeah, I agree, Zach. That's a great point. Um, so, right, when we look at that and I think about how much um, school and, and time we put into um, learning about what cattle actually need and um, what, what their day-to-day -day needs are, what, what the best thing is to do to take care of them when it's this cold out, um, all those little details we've thought of and know how to make them the best we can and whatever mother nature gives gives to us um and then to turn around and say like in a blizzard situation and for for us for somebody to come out and take a a picture of a, a animal that's obviously uh in some kind of trauma or pain is it just blows my mind a little bit that somebody would would do that but you know, that's, I guess they have their agenda and uh, they don't have any scruples about how they go about achieving their goals. Um, we've seen that. So just have to deal with it. It's one of the things. Well, I mean, I think it becomes a little bit more, I mean, you know, than just how do you deal with it so it doesn't sort of get in your sort of life. Uh, but, but unfortunately, you know, it's been very influential. And in fact, I, I think that uh, we're seeing uh, the Canadian food guidelines just came out and it basically is, is a very plant heavy meat poor diet, you know, a few scraps of meat, you know, and uh, that's what Canada is recommending. And I know you're not far from Canada and a lot of, a lot of the beef up there is grown in Alberta, which is not far from you. Um, what are your thoughts on, on trying to politicize our diet or trying to uh, sort of dictate what we should eat and particularly knowing that those things are going to impact how our school children eat, how, you know, any kind of federal, uh, you know, federal institution where they get federal funding is going to be forced to eat. What are your, are, do you have any concerns about that as far as sort of limiting, you know, or seriously restricting meat from the diet? Oh, yes. Um, definitely have concerns about the way that, the way that process is, is brought out is, 
itself is pretty political and how the people get appointed to that dietary guideline committee. Um, some of the activities outside of the committee that the, the researchers have or doctors have, um, definitely a concern. And then, you know, like you said, Canada's, but it's a, it's a worldwide effort on their part to keep meat out of the diet. I think it's just um, by trial and error that people come back to meat. And, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the um, fake uh, protein or the, the wannabe meat products, I guess, in the market already that are plant-based and some that are trying to grow uh, meat from cells. Those kind of products, I, 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 I feel really funny about too because First of all, they tell us that meat's bad for us, right? It causes heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, whatever you can think of, they try to blame on meat. And then, it, and then the, some of those same people turn around and are involved in um, trying to create meat-like products or um, replace meat in the diet. So, you know, which is it? Is it so bad for us? We don't want to eat it. And if it's so bad, why are you trying to mimic it? I mean, obviously, there's a there's a financial conflict of interest there. You know, we saw the Eat Lancet uh, recommendations came out of several days ago, and you know, it's it's you know the sponsors of that particular organism are mostly processed food companies, and and then some drug manufacturers, and then of course some sort of vegan vegan proponents sort of lead that sort of thing. Some of the scientists in there, which are which are vegetarians and vegans, and so we certainly see sort of a bias against this sort of thing. Um, when we look at the sort of the ingredients in the, the quote unquote, and we'll, we'll get to the later part, you know, later about the lab room, but, but, you know, just looking at these beyond meat products, these impossible burger products. I mean, it's, it's a mixture of, you know, some sort of plant protein, you know, kind of with some kind of plant oil and then, you know, probably 10 to 15 other ingredients that are of questionable value or potentially harmful. And so we see that being pushed, uh, we see that, you know, what has happened in the Western diet, particularly in the U.S. diet over the last, you know, 50 years or so is as animal, you know, animal source food has gone down and, and particularly with animal fats when we replaced tallow and, and, and butter and lard uh, now with hydro, partially hydrogenated, hydrogenated cooking oils, uh, we see that, you know, as the animal nutrition goes down, it gets, it invariably gets replace with processed foods. I mean, that's what we see just because it's, it's hard to replicate the amount of energy that you get from those sources when you take animal nutrition out of the diet. And so when I look at the Canadian guidelines, you know, it's, you know, on paper, it's, you know, a little bit of meat, lots of fruits and grains and vegetables and nuts and stuff like that, which would probably be an improvement on most people's diet, you know, with, with the exception of maybe removing the meat. But I mean, if you got rid of all the Twinkies and the, and the uh, Doritos and the the garbage. The problem is that's not what ever happens. We know that when you reduce meat, we clearly just start eating processed food. I mean, that's what happens because what happens is meat is so nutritionally satisfying and it fills such a big void nutritionally that when you don't have that, you can't get filled up on fruits and vegetables. It's just not enough energy. It's not enough fat there. And so what people do is they turn to these, these industrial seed oils to get their energy. And that's just what happens over and over again. So Ultimately, it backfires on them. Um, Danny, let me ask you about, uh, this is an issue, because we had a fellow on the other day named Bart Simmons. He's another uh, cow producer down in Texas. 
Uh, he's got a couple of ranches uh, up near Dallas and up near Big Bear. And we had a really interesting discussion with him. And the way he ranches, you know, he, he, he finishes his own on grass. And then, you know, I think he sends them to a particular processor and he's really happy with that situation. You're in South Dakota, it's snow on the ground. Um, talk to me why you or many other producers just don't all jump on board on this. We're all gonna grass fit, finish every animal there is and why you do a cow-calf operation rather than that. And, and what are some of the pros and cons of that? Because that's very, there's a lot of misinformation around that. You know, we think that uh, sending an animal to a feed yard is, you know, torture and slavery. And can you talk a little bit about uh, why you do what you do? Sure. I, yeah, that's a really, really good question. I, and, and I appreciate you uh, understanding the differences in climate between like, Texas and South Dakota. It's, it's, a, it's a huge uh, difference in climate rate for people. So think about cattle in the, the same difference in climate. And so how do we treat them differently? Um, so our grass season is uh, pretty much from May to August, September. After that, there's, there's not a lot of nutrients in the grass. It doesn't really store in the grass too well. So what we'll, we do is put up a lot of hay in that growing season. So we put that, dry out that grass and put it in a, in a bale so we can store it for the winter. So then we'll feed the cows this time of year when everything's covered with snow and they can't really get at the grass. So we feed them that hay then. So they're, they get the nutrition they need winter long. So for the calves, so what we do is calve the cows in um, Mar March and April, and then they stay on their cow on the cows um, until weaning time, which is in October. In October, we generally sell them um, to a feedlot farmer feeder. I would call them in um, Iowa. They've gone to Nebraska before, or Minnesota. Last, this year, they went to a uh, uh, guy in Iowa that we know. And so he will feed them until about April and May, until they're, they're, they're fully grown, they'll be adult size, and, um, and then they'll be harvested. So that's kind of the life cycle of, of a calf that happens every year, you know. Uh, so and to me, that's the, that's the greatest thing about ranching is we get an another chance to do it right all over again the next year. So improve on it every year. Hey, Danny, at what point do, the, do you guys put the cows in a little box so they can't turn around and, and start beating? And when is that? What part of that? What well, that'd that? be when a vegan activist shows up and I <laughs> <laughs> would have to, have to do that if they absolutely made me. Otherwise, I would never do that. Danny, along those same lines, because uh, you highlighted, you know, you're in a little bit of a different situation than, uh, than J-Bart is being down in Texas that uh, you deal with winter and you know I'm from Wisconsin originally so I know what a harsh winter looks like and I know sometimes up by you you get it even worse so uh, what is the like threshold I guess for a cow um, throughout the course of the winter are they able to do, minus not being able to kind of graze on the grass growing from the ground and uh, you feeding them the hay uh, do they still hang around and roam around outside even when it's cold out or do they have to come inside yeah, no, they're outside year-round, Zach. That's a good question. We do provide them with windbreak because I don't know if Wisconsin was as windy as we get here in South Dakota, but um, it'll get real windy and um, that wind chill factor, like like this morning, I don't know what it was, 10 degrees or something, but they said the real fill is minus one because of the wind chill. And so 
that's that's when you know you need to give them some protection and stuff. Some people don't uh, don't need the artificial windbreak. Some people um, some of the land has some draws and stuff like steep uh, ravines that the cattle can get into for protection. So it just depends on. No two ranches are ever the same, so I hate to I hate to answer questions like, "Well, this is how it is in South Dakota," because that's not true. Every ranch in South Dakota is different too. So, so I would say that you know, just uh, some if if you ask a rancher a question and it's not the same answer you get from another one, that's probably because they're in two different areas or the ranches aren't similar. Cool. Well, thanks. Um, I think you know one other question I had too with uh based on what you kind of had shared is um, kind of curious, like what the weaning process is like when you have uh, a cow give birth, what do you remove? How, how long is it before you remove the calf from, from the mother cow? And, and what's that like? Cause just like some of the, the slaughter videos you can find there. The other thing is that you were ripping these babies from the mothers and they're kicking and screaming. And then they're, they're living a life essentially of, uh, you know, no, no parenting more or less. Uh, what, what is that process like? Uh, so we, we will, um, how do I explain this? After they're born, um, we, they stay with their mother until six to seven months of age here. And then, um, the, the calves will get on trucks and, and then they go to the feed yard. And the, the weaning process is noisy. It's like uh, if you'd put a um, hundred mothers at one end of a gymnasium and a hundred kids at the other end of the gymnasium and they wanted to yell back and forth to find each other. That's kind of what weaning day is like. They're, they're um, looking for their calf and they're looking for their mother. And then after about two days of that bellering process, they're done and the, the cows want to go back out to grass and, and the calves at the feed yard are ready to eat. They go to the bunk and they start eating. Or they, I mean, they eat as soon as they get there or they eat when they're hungry because the food's there all the time. But, you know, it doesn't, they don't seem like they miss their mama anymore after a day or two. Hey, Danny, there's, this is something that I've seen and I've, I've, I've seen people talk about this and, you know, sometimes, you know, when, when these animals are born and, and not sure cows, but I don't know, with pigs and stuff like that, that they have to remove the small babies from away from the mothers because the mothers sometimes accidentally kill their animals. They're, you know, they, they, they can sometimes squish them, step on them. And so that's one of the reasons that's done. And a lot of people, are, it's a misconception. Is that, are the, is there, are the mothers ever a biohazard to their own babies? Yeah, they are. That, that they once in a while. Yeah, so I think that's something. Yeah, that so I mean, once in a while. Um, actually, we try to get rid of those um, right away. I mean, uh, uh, some, some of them, they say it's a hormonal issue. And I think it's somewhat genetic that, that they just get so worked up and, and whatever, they just start bunting their baby around. And usually when we've had that happen, the, the calf is pushed through the fence. And you think, well, that's odd. And you go get the calf back on the right side of the fence. And next time you go out it's the same thing and you watch, stand there and watch a while and she keeps bunting that calf back i don't know if it's uh just the over aggressiveness or what but yeah we've we've seen it we try to wean it out you know you can you can have too much docility and too much aggressiveness that in in a cow and you just kind of by um experience deal with it Danny, can you talk to us, because how long you've been doing this for a while now, and you've seen the industry change, I'm sure. Can you talk to us about how 
Um, things have improved with regard to um, resource utilization, breeding techniques, you know, uh, mitigation of greenhouse gases. How has the industry responded to that over the years? Because people have been very critical saying that, you know, the, you know they are very resource intensive. But the reality is, you know, based on what I've seen and read, you know, over the last 15, 50 years, we've really improved that. How, how is that, how have you noticed that personally in your, in your ranching operation? Well, I would say we look at it like how many uh, pounds of beef are we producing an acre? And that's gone up since we started and that's, that's through genetics. Um, water um, is a big one. You know, we used to just have dams and creeks um, rivers for for the cattle to drink out of. Um, it's it's really been uh, brought to light from the Natural Resource Conservation Service that you know it's good to have those cattle out of those riparian zones. So um, a lot of people have put in um, tanks, and so we also found out that having that fresh water in tanks uh, in the pasture help um, them put on grow faster put on weight faster. So that's to the benefit of us too, because um, the more pounds we're selling, the more, more we get paid. So win-win. Um, and um, so the cattle aren't putting manure into the water that's running down into the rivers in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, we're, we're getting more pounds per animal. So uh, that would be one example. Um, let me think. I, I think most probably genetic and and just the nutrition level. What we've learned on nutrition on cattle, right? We can't do nutrition um, research on people as easily as we can on cattle because cattle we can put in a pen and feed two different groups perfectly. We just about um, got into a trial with a with a yeast product called Biomass, and we feed that during calving. And what it does is it helps. Um, the rumen produce good bacteria and um, helps the calves um, immune system incredibly. And we've been using the product for a while and, and the, one of the feed manufacturers um, came to us and wanted to do a trial on it. We almost had it set up, but um, we decided we were feeding to the, the groups a little bit too much different to have apples to apples comparison. So we are gonna get that done, but um, just that constant nutritional research that's coming forward and, and and becoming more efficient with cattle. You know, the, we have less cattle, but more beef in the country now than we did 30 years ago and 20 years ago and probably even 10 years ago. So small yeah, advances equal big changes long run. Yeah, I think, I think the, you know, I think the U.S. cattle inventories, I think it peaked around 130 million, you know, in the 70s and now it's down around 93 million and so 94 million. So we've definitely done more with less and I think there's, there's efforts to continue to do that. I know it's interesting, you know, because a lot of people are concerned about methane and, and, and whether or not that's truly a concern or not, depending on who you talk to, there's different answers. But even even if you you are concerned about it, and certainly cows aren't the the main source of methane in the world, there's many other sources. But there are some products I know that they're looking at, some algae products that specifically Australia has been testing and shows that they can almost completely eliminate methane, methane uh, emissions from you know, again, from the rumor from the cows belching uh, by doing that as a nutritional supplement. So there's, there's still more stuff to go with, with making, you know, cattle even more efficient, less and more environmentally friendly, not, not to mention the fact that they can potentially be used to 
sequester carbon back into the soil, which you know, everybody seems to ignore that fact. Let's talk about, because I know you, you went and uh, participated in uh, this thing on this lab meat, this, this synthetic meat, and you got to hear what the process is or how it stands today. Can you kind of walk us through that and what some of the concerns people might have? Because everybody's thinking it's going to save the, save the earth, that we're going to, you know, we're going to get, take all these cows away and we're going to replace it with uh, these giant bioreactors. It'll make this, you know, kind of meat, meat like product. I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be allowed to call meat yet. I know that's debatable, but some sort of meat like product made out of cells. Can you talk us through that and, and what some of the issues around that are currently? Yeah, I, I sure can, Sean. Um, yeah, I wanna, so one of the things we first talked about um, when we thought, well, so, somebody needs to take the lead on this, this uh, lab cell cultured stuff going on because, uh, you know, they first, whenever they would talk about it, they talked about their product being clean meat. And that just didn't jive with, with any of us uh, because how can they recreate the rumen, so to speak, right? The rumen is what makes uh, a cow or a goat special, um, a sheep, because they can take those hard cellulose products that no other stomach really can utilize as well as they can and turn it into a human edible protein. And so um, how could what's left off at the end product there be clean? I, I'm still, I, no one's been able to explain that to me, right? So anybody that I've talked to about research or growing cells in the lab said, well, we, we have to take that, those cells and stick them right in the freezer and they start growing bacteria. Or we use antibiotics or we use Lysol or we use whatever to keep, try to keep bacteria out of it. Because as soon as you put something in that situation and try to promote the growth of it, it gets bacteria in it. So that's been confusing too. I don't, I, and, and uh, nobody wants to come forward with this uh, process and say exactly how it's done yet. It's a big secret. Um, and I understand that they're still in the research phases of it. So it probably is a secret, but um, yeah. So in October, um, USDA and FDA had a joint public meeting and I went out and testified at that one. So, um, I, I was impressed with, with the two agencies. They didn't even come out and call it fake meat or uh, lab meat product or anything. They called it, um, the, the public meeting itself was called the use of cell culture technology to develop products derived from livestock and poultry. So that seemed to uh, be clear to me that they weren't ready to call it meat either. And then um, interesting, point of view from, from them is FDA has experience with cell-grown technology um, in the aspect of medicine. And I'm sure, Sean, you're way more familiar with any of that kind of stuff than I could ever be. But um, so what they do with when somebody brings that to them is they look at the end product and go, yep, that skin, it'll, it should work out. You know, every, it's, it's not, they're not involved in the, the how-to process where USDA looks at things from a food production aspect. And so if somebody brings them a bag of chips, they go back and go, okay, we got to see how you did this. And we want to inspect it every step of the way. So they look for steps in there that they can, um, they can regulate and, and um, inspect it as it goes for safety. So um, those, that was, 
made sense to me how those two two agencies should work together on it because you're not you're not going to be able to look at this deal and just inspect it at the end like FDA does, but USDA also doesn't have the experience of looking at the cell technology at all. So they, they agreed that they should work together on it. And I was impressed with that because uh, up until that point, it seemed like they were kind of fighting over who was going to take the lead on it. And collaboration is probably going to work best on this kind of a deal. So what is a, walk us through the process of how, how the technology stands right now based on what you heard. Because I'm kind of familiar with what, what supposedly happens, but I'll be interested to see what you saw directly from the people that, that were discussing how they did this. You know, like how do they get the cells? How do they feed the cells? What do they do to keep the cells alive? Um, where do they get their energy from? You know, where do they get, where do they, you know, like I said, you got to feed those cells something. What do we know basically so far? Okay. So what, what was told to us at that meeting was, um, and we kind of put a infogram, if you will, together about it um, on the U.S. Cattlemen's Twitter page or Facebook page. I think you'd be able to find that. But um, so, so basically they, um, they take a group of cells um, out of whatever species they're looking at and they um, take out, um, F, uh, fetal, bovine fetal serum. So bovine fetal serum is basically, um, it's, it's kind of disgusting. So if you're eating, you might not want to hear this, but it's um, the, a calf in utero and they would take um, the serum or blood out of that. So, and the reason for that is that, that calf in utero is in such a state of growth, you've got a lot more stem cells or whatever, growth promoting um, hormones, whatever makes it grow um, there. And then they, then they inject that into their cells. They feed the cells nutrients, hormones. Uh, I, they had a lot of different names of things that would go into it and um, grow this group of cells. Um, they have to add, um, since they don't have bone, they'll have tendon or you know, other tissues because meat isn't just cells. Um, they don't have that stuff. They have to add some kind of infrastructure. So they add in, um, they called it uh, scaffolding. And they didn't really know what the scaffolding was made out of, but um, some people had um, suggested it was probably uh, plant-based kind of a scaffolding material that would grow on. And then I wasn't sure, I didn't understand if the scaffolding product went away or if that was still in the product at the end. But at the end of that, it would be harvested. And when we harvest a live animal, we have a whole process called rigor mortis that sets in, makes the, the meat real tough for a period of time. And then that rigor mortis relaxes and you get a nice tender meat product. In, yeah. in this situation where the, the, the cells uh, aren't fed the stuff anymore, they don't have that process. And so um, the gal that explained it from FDA kind of ended her presentation abruptly. And I don't, I, I, my assumption was that they really didn't know what happened after that. Danny, so, let me go back to the, you know, the fetal bovine serum, because how do they get the serum? It's my understanding that they have to sacrifice the pregnant cow they have to extract the serum from the fetus while it's still alive and they're not able to use anesthesia when they do that. So it's not exactly cruelty-free if you want to do that. 
And then my understanding is they have to continue to get serum over and over again, as long as that, that you know, to, to provide the media for which the cells can grow. Is that, is that what your understanding is as well? That's my understanding too, Sean. Yep, yep. I, I, my no, the, best guess. The interesting thing I find about a lot of this is it's, uh, it, we're, it sounds like we're trying to replicate a process that is very efficient already in the sense that like, ruminants are just great upcyclers. They're going to take uh, products that we cannot use in environments that are oftentimes too harsh for us to really do a whole lot with. And they're going to take that environment and they're going to create this end product um, that is the meat. But, you know, so that is a fairly fine tuned process that, that I see that's in place. And when I look at kind of issues that are potentially present with uh, you know, ranching or just animal agriculture in general, it's the, the big problem is the transportation of it all. It's like when we're flying things across oceans and taking them across countries and things like that, that, that does come at a cost, but it's a transportation cost, um, which is, seems to be the one that we're at least in some part looking at solving at the moment too. And it's always, I, I always am confused as to why we don't just invest more energy into improving that system, making that system less expensive from a pollution standpoint or from an environmental standpoint, as opposed to trying to fine tune or perfect something that's already really, really well, well established when we just let nature kind of do its thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Zach. I, I don't know either. I, I feel like that too, creating a, uh, these cells in a bioreactor, if they want to call it that, or um, they don't like the term, a petri dish. Uh, but any of that they're doing, it's not natural. I'm sorry. Any way you look at that, it's just not natural. Um, that cow out there turning sunshine, rain, and soil, grass into uh, human protein, high quality human protein. I, I don't think it gets any better than that. And I don't think I. I highly doubt it. It'll be rep. We'll be able to replicate it at some point, possibly. Um, but I don't think you can do it better than nature in this case. The counter argument to that would be, you know, you know, even if we can get close, it, it saves cows' lives and there's and, you're, and it's less environmentally damaging. But back to the process, because I think it's it's we really need to to, to flesh this out. You know, my again, my understanding is that you know you've got those. You can't just turn protein and and cell cultured protein into protein from nothing. You have to feed them that, and so they have to get the protein from somewhere. And my understanding is it will require you know for every gram of protein you make, you've got to feed them a gram of protein, you know, amino acids, and and, and from that, and you get that from growing monocultured mono, mono uh, or monocrop, you know, big row crops of whether it's peas or soybeans or something like that. So you've got to, you know, grow all this tremendous amount of uh, uh, plant crops to feed those things to start with, to, to produce that. Then the energy has to come from somewhere. And then you have to dispose of the waste products. You know, we don't know what to do with that. And then also my understanding is that scaffolding you talked about, one of the scaffoldings that's been proposed is actually made out of microplastics. And so, I don't know if, if that goes away or stays or not before, you know, if they're expecting us to eat microplastics as well uh, is potentially problematic. The other thing that may be of concern is the fact that, you know, these cells that they grow, once they harvest them, uh, they, they will continue growing them, you know, basically as long as they possibly can. And so basically those cells take on the properties 
The same thing we see with cancer cells with this unlimited uh, immortal, immortal lines of growth, which, which is what we have with things like breast cancer cells that go back to the 1960s. And so potentially we're eating these sort of altered cells that you know, maybe just eating a big pile of can cancer cells, which may be disturbing to people. And then the other issue is, you know, these cells do not have an immune system. And so how do you prevent them from getting infections? Well, you do it in a sterile environment, but as soon as that virax is, is open, you've got to bathe them in massive amounts of antibiotics. And I know the uh, animal agriculture industry has been criticized for, for the utilization of antibiotics, but this thing's going to require as much or possibly more in, all, in, in, in pretty much in every situation. So I think there's a lot of other issues. Were those things brought up to you as well? Because that's, that's you know, and I've done some reading on this stuff, so. Yeah, and I, Sean, I think all of what you brought up there is genuine concerns, and yes, we share those concerns, and no, I don't have the answers. I, I just I just don't, because this whole process and, and, and the product itself brings about more, way more questions than answers. So, um, looking at it from our standpoint, um, are we, uh, as cattle producers, worried about this product like taking us over? Or, no, not really. We just want to make sure that consumers know the difference of it. And, and we saw it happen with milk. Um, you, you go in the milk aisle and, and almond is called, almond juice or whatever was, is called milk. And there's all kinds of plant-based products calling themselves milk. And, and milk to me was always something that came from a cow. And, and I just, we looked at that and thought, well, is this the same thing going to happen to the, the meat uh, department? When you go to the meat department, are you going to see, um, you're already seeing a little bit with uh, impossible burgers. They're calling, they're putting burgers, they're, they're putting terminology that was usually a meat, uh, uh, beef or a meat term now behind vegetable products. Okay. So we asked in this petition for them to um, look at that as well. So we're hoping that they just make it, make some kind of rules or language that these companies have to follow so that people can identify the difference between products and not accidentally take home plant-based product after product. And so suddenly the kids don't seem as healthy as they used to be. And I really don't know why. So I just, I just fear that happening because people don't like you two are foodies, you know, you know what's uh, what what real food is and stuff, but a lot of people aren't that. Don't they're not label readers and don't go into the grocery store and and really look at the food they're buying. So we just want to make sure that people have the our product differentiated from these new new coming products. Yeah, I think too it's interesting because when you brought up like almond milk and I think people sometimes will look at that and if if they don't know a lot they might think you know it's milk if they look into it. If you look into it even further too, there's always that question of, uh, you know, what is the process of creating almond milk? How efficient is that? What are the unforeseen consequences of like millions and millions of people switch from drinking dairy milk to, I guess, almond juice is what they're going to call it now. I think, uh, I think there was even uh, some sort of a, a process going on right now about whether they could even call it almond milk anymore. So maybe that's kind of maybe they more or less uh, blazed a little bit of a trail for the, for the meat, the, the meat alternatives in the future where they have to label it something other than burger, or, you know, that's more synonymous to real meat. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen a couple state legislators propose uh, sort of making it illegal to call these plant-based, you know, substitutes actual meat. So I think that's out there in, in the public, uh, you know, legislation perhaps, and you know, it's on a state by state basis.
Now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store. This is actually a fair bit more economical, and so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very, uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. Let me ask you, uh, because some people are starting to call, you're talking about, and this may be, and this may be a few years away, and probably will affect other places before it comes to the United States. But talking about uh, taxes on meat up to, I've seen places where they, they, they propose something like a 163% tax on any processed meat and a 34% tax on, you know, just regular beef, red meat. How would that impact your capacity as a, as a rancher if you had, if, if there was a 34% tax on meat? Well, I think it'd be, I think it'd be terrible to, tax the most nutritious food in in the world and i it is happening in europe is that correct uh it's being talked about i don't think it's actually happened yet but certainly it's it's Uh, uh, not far from maybe happening certainly it'd be it'd be uh i'm sure it's on the vegan agenda and uh definitely would have i'm meat is a budget item for most families they can't just go out and buy all the meat they want um, so I just, yeah, it'd be, it would be very detrimental to, uh, to the health, I think, of people more than anything. So, you know, would it, would it affect your capacity as a rancher to produce if, if that, you know, if there's a premium on that, if, if uh, you know, I'm just wondering, I know that uh, guys like uh, Bart Simmons said, you know, it would, it would, it would largely put him out of business just the way he, way his, way his, uh, I guess his ranch is set up, you know, and, and perhaps it would maybe further consolidate the the meat production and the processing, you know, even more so and centralize it. I know right now uh, much of the meat that's produced in the U.S. is runs through a couple major suppliers, you know, at the, in the end of the day. And so, you know, those guys could probably absorb that sort of tax. And I don't know how the smaller operations would handle that. Are you... Are you, are they talking about taxing um, the production of it or would it be at the end user? I would imagine it would be at the end user, but who knows? I mean, again, this is all speculation. So yeah. all talked about there, you know, obviously the, the whole goal here is to seriously dissuade people from eating meat uh, in, right. the, in the, you know, supposedly because it's, 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 you know, in the name of sustainability and the, the saving the planet. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, that's very misguided. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd just be uh, 
disappointed in humanity if we did something like that because it is it, it is an expensive protein already um it, it, it's it's a highly nutritious food for for the value right now it's it's still a good value but if you if you're gonna double or triple the cost of it yeah it's gonna make it so poor families can't can't get the protein they need i just i think that's absurd hey dan this is another thing uh that i often hear Tell me about all the meat subsidies that the U.S. government pays you to ranch. Tell me about all the money they give you to raise cattle, uh, because I'm, I'm always told that, yeah, we subsidize ranchers and so on and so forth. Is there any truth to that? No, um, there is some conservation programs that will cost share some of that water development I talked about so that, that cattle are drinking um, well water instead of going to the rivers and and potentially ruining riparian zones. Um, some of that um, in our area, that that would be the only cost share we have. So they don't. So, there's no subsidies like we see with with uh, some of the other other crops like corn and no. soy and wheat and stuff like that. So yeah, that I think that's a misconception. A lot of people think that uh, we are subsidizing beef when when and truly we're not. Uh, you know, no. per, you know. I mean, perhaps the feed they get is is at a lower price because we subsidize. Uh, some of the some of the corn and stuff like that, but I, again, yeah, anything would be a uh, secondary or indirect subsidy through feed that would probably be true. So, not nearly what uh, ethanol or uh, even uh, um, oil companies would get as subsidies. Yeah, is it? I think dairy maybe would be the only thing that would be cow related that would have any subsidies to my to my knowledge but yeah the beef is one where i think people just usually they slide it in with the rest of the agriculture side and just assume it is um i want to go back uh, well i'm sorry go ahead even i was gonna say even crop subsidies have largely gone away we've uh, we've done enough free trade agreements with other countries we don't have much anymore we're basically we we've downgraded all of them to a point there's not much left on any of it so um corn and soybeans are probably the highest subsidies wheat is hardly anything anymore so we don't have much out here interesting um yeah i wanted to ask one other thing because you had mentioned when we were talking about kind of the winter on the farm and how that varies and you talked about uh you know when during the the, the more temperate months of the year the cows are out there grazing on their own and then you're baling hay for them in the winter is that considered to be like grass fed then throughout the course of the time frame that the cows are in your on your farm before you'd send them off to a feedlot yeah i guess um i like the term grass-based because they'll almost everything is grass-based at some point um the so the cow's entire life all of our mother cows would be uh, uh, grass-fed their whole entire life. Um, those calves that go to the feed yard that first six months are all grass-fed and then they're finished on mostly forages, some corn, some some soy, I think, and then ethanol byproduct they put in there. Um, but they mix that ration accordingly and they're, they're pretty pretty science-based about at what age and weight they should be fed this. And, and once they're cleaning that up, they, they move on. Um, but they've got a, a really strict mega cow diet that, that they put those calves on to start with and, and all the way through the finish phase so that they, 
continue to, to grow as much muscle as they can and then fatten and finish to, to a good stage. You know, one, one thing that this is just surprising me when I was up there, I found out that uh, they can't get too big, though. If you let them get too big, then the processors can't deal with them. I think they can't have a hanging weight more than about 1,050 pounds, or then they, you know, you, you kind of get docked for that. Except, I, I guess, I later found out there's a place up in Wisconsin that can handle, I think it's Wisconsin or Michigan, that can handle bigger cows. So you, can, you can actually get the really big cows there if you want the real big ribeye steaks like I would like. <laughs> Right. Uh, so yeah, when we sell and we call them a cold cow when they're they're finished on the on the ranch and they're not um, old enough to to keep having calves, um, they will be sold as a as a cold cow. We call them or a slaughter cow, and I think they do go to a place in Wisconsin from around here that's uh, a little made for those little bigger carcass. Same with a bull. Unfortunately, bulls get old too, and we have to say goodbye to them and. And some of them are so ornery by that time we aren't bad, hard, don't feel bad about seeing them go and others are really nice. So um, they'll, they'll have that, they'll go to the same type of places. Andy, one other thing I wanted to ask too is, uh, you know, about the, when, when you do take your cows to, um, to the, or take them, take them off the farm and take them uh, to get processed, what is it like? What's the relationship like with the the rancher and uh, the processing facilities? Is that something that the rancher goes in and like checks out the area to make sure they are okay with how everything's run there? Or like, I think some people think about it as like, well, this is just some random spot the rancher has no clue about, and they're dropping them off and forgetting about them. Mm, no, um, so. When we sell, we actually sell them to um, a, a farmer that feeds them out, right? So we go down, um, like uh, last year we went in about March, I think it was, and, and just seeing how they were doing. And I, I just really impressed with his setup. So um, instead of them being in mud all the time, he's got um, some covered sheds that they stay, they can be under there. And then if it's nice and dry, he can let them out in an outdoor area too. So. Um, they're just, it's just like uh, a shed to keep them nice and dry because uh, one of the th biggest things feedlots fight, nobody wants to fight with this is mud, and, you know, and uh, when they're in there and they just get things stirred up and they stand in mud, that's, that's hard on them. It's hard on, on the owners to, to see them like that. So no, we definitely check that, check that kind of thing out. As far as being at the processors, um, hey, we eat this too. We meet at the at the end of the day too, so we definitely want to see a clean processor and everything like that. So yeah, um, I I think uh, they're if they're selling to that processor. They gotta have a comfort level with them. So hey, Danny, just uh, just uh, just a quick sort of diversion here. When you said you eat meat too, I know for a period of time, or or maybe you still you ate. A pretty much a carnivorous diet. Are you? Did that help? How did that change, help with your health? And what happened with you when you did that? Yeah. So, I don't have one of those big miraculous health stories like I was severely obese and I lost a bunch of weight. Um, no big story like that. And maybe it's because I've eaten meat my whole life. I, I think we've. I, I probably have eaten beef almost every day of my entire life because I grew up on a farm. We're Catholic, so those those Fridays that that we have to fast my dad always said, you know that the apostles were fishermen because 
they made it so you couldn't meet on Fridays. And then, and it is a huge sacrifice for ranchers, especially, and probably you carnivores too. If you make yourself go a day without meat, you're hungry. And so at a young age, we realized that, you know, beef's a mainstay in the diet. And, and so um, I, I, I always had it in my diet, of course, but um, started following you about a year and a half ago or so and thought, well, heck, I should try and just leave everything else out and see how I feel. Well, as a matter of fact, I did, did feel a lot better. The, the achy joint, achiness and joints and stuff that have developed a little bit have gone away and kind of nice. I dropped a little bit of that, oh, pre, what do they call it? Pre-menopause. I suppose I had some of that weight kind of creeping on and that kind of went away. I found my waist totally kind of back in line what it was in my 20s. So yeah, those kind of things are, are nice to have. And uh, I've, yeah, I pretty much stayed about a 90, 95% carnivore diet. Hey, Danny, let me ask you, uh, you know, we're at a, what appears to be a crossroads on nutrition. And I think, you know, society as a whole is going to be asked to embark upon this plant-based future, which I see honestly as a processed food future versus, you know, staying true to who we are as a species and as human beings. And continue to eat meat regularly in, in, in the quantities that I think is appropriate for humans. What are you as a producer or members of the U.S. Cattlemen's Association or other people that are involved in this, in, in this industry, are they concerned? Are they doing anything about it? Uh, what, what strategy do they have to, to sort of uh, oppose this? Because there's a lot of money being spent to, to drive people to this plant-based future, and it's coming from these you know, processed food companies is coming from drug manufacturers is coming from, you know, these sort of very uh, wealthy vegan activists and other folks that, that seem to think that's the right thing to do. What are you doing? What can we do as a, a population to help you guys or, or, you know, what, what's, what's the deal there? I, I, that's a great question, Sean. And if I, if I had the answer, I would make it happen. Um, people, largely don't know we're under attack that much um as as you're aware and and i'm aware like like we see the dietary guidelines come out and they're just more plant-based and just a little more plant-based and i see it in our school lunch programs and it, it's a concern and and we we as a u.s cattlemen's group try to um you know put our two cents in where we can on that kind of stuff with usda and stuff but largely it it People are so busy raising cattle and trying to take care of their families out here. It, it just goes unnoticed to a point that not a lot's happening. Um, and you're right. I, I feel like the, the plant-based movement is so organized and they have their agenda and goals very, very outlined. And um, that it's hard when we're, we're so uh, divided out here, I guess. I'm not sure how to how to bring everybody together in one direction to to fight it, except to keep telling the truth, I guess, about what we do. And uh, I feel like um, finding people like you guys online has has helped me tremendously to go, hey, we're not the only ones that think this way, and um, not the only ones finding more gaps in in the research that that told us that beef caused heart disease in the first place. And things like that. So I, I think um, just keep uh, trying to 
connect a network of people like us is, is about all we can do. What about as far as uh, lobbying politicians and, and that sort of stuff? I mean, you know, these guys ultimately are going to be asked to vote on taxes and that sort of thing. You know, I know that uh, Nina Tykols is trying to organize a, a campaign to talk to the USDA secretary. I think his name is Sonny Pierce. Trying to get people to, to tag him on social media to, you know, uh, write him letters saying, look, we need, we need an evidence-based guideline that's not based on uh, nutritional epidemiology, which is, you know, at best it's problematic, you know, and at worst it's basically backwards. And so, um, you know, I, I, I just, you know, as someone who is a, probably as a big an advocate as beef out there, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's almost frustrating not seeing the National Cattlemen's Beef Board or, you know, National Cattlemen's Association, you know, stepping up hard on this stuff. And I think they should be. Yeah, I think, well, you can look at it two ways. Okay, so so we are the beef producers, and if, if we jump in in full force and say something, does it mean as much as somebody that, of course, we're going to be viewed as biased no matter what we do. But at the same time, we have to get out of this defensive approach and be proactive. Like you're, you're saying, like, I think team up with Nina and, and some of those groups, uh, I think her Nutrition Coalition. I think that's the name of that group. Any anything I've seen out of that group, I've been very impressed with. So anything we can do to help help that kind of movement out makes sense to me. Um, when you talk about lobbying, that gets into a lot of money. And guess who has a lot of money? The processed food industry, who you know, like it or not, they're they, at the end of the day they make money off of uh, off of the end product, and and we're all here producing the raw product, and it. So it's a very thin margin on the raw product end and we're on the raw product end of the cattle and, and crops or anything we produce. So we just have to um, keep telling the truth and, and keep that nutrition focus, I think, and, and try to get it headed the right way. What is the, uh, you know, what is the outlook for ranching over the next decade or two decades or generation? Are you seeing people that are still interested that are going into this or or is it something that is a dying, dying art? Um, the average age of a rancher is like uh, 60 something. So it's, um, when you look at the, at the profit potential of a ranch, you first, uh, you look at the cost of land and that's uh, really gone up in relation to the, um, the, pri the, the price of, uh, beef or cattle that we receive. So um, it makes it, it makes it a tough sell sometimes for young people to get into it. On the other hand, I see a lot of really dedicated young people and the, some of the brightest minds coming back to ranches and, and really wanting to take on that challenge of, yeah, I want to, I want to do what grandpa did and dad did. So I, I see both and um, it, it's always been a challenge. So I don't think it's, it's new. I think we just need to find better ways of, of keeping our young people into these rural communities. Yeah. It seems like with that, one of the biggest hurdles is like to be a first generation farmer is the upfront cost of something like that. And you alluded to it with like the price of land and stuff is, is so big that rarely are people going to pull the trigger or feel like they can pull the trigger on something like that. Whereas when you're passing down from one family member to the next, it's, it's a little more achievable and it's a lifestyle that they've likely known for so long and have some sort of uh, 
emotional connection to too. So, you know, you hate to see like, you know, some of these families sell their, sell off their land to something that's going to use it for something different than, than, than ranching. Um, But yeah, so, you know, hopefully as some of these more, these newer processes emerge too, like with the Savory Institute and things, it'll kind of reignite some of that interest from folks who would maybe not otherwise get in as a first generation. Right. Yep. I think that's a, that's a good possibility. Hey, Dana, let, let people know, you know, where, where they can find you. Cause I know you're a little bit, you're active a little bit on Twitter, I think, and you've got the, you know, your ranch that you guys have a little website for. So people are interested to see, you know, how, how life is in South, in South Dakota on, on, on the beer ranch. And, uh, uh, you know, let us know how to, how to get a hold of you. Yeah. So on Twitter, my handle is at SD beer ranch. And I think I have a blog. I am not real good about blogging, but, um, there's some older stuff on there. I feel like sometimes maybe it's the same pictures over and over. So I don't, I don't keep it up real a whole lot, but there, there's our, um, ranch blog is, um, beer ranch blog. I think that's all it is. So Anyway, if you search that, that shows up too. And um, yeah, any kind of questions or if you hear something, see something that you're doubting is true about ranching, I'd love to answer any questions anybody has or um, talk talk about carnivorous diets, always fun. So appreciate what you guys do and um, sure, uh, impressed with um, your all of your personal best that you guys keep doing over and over zach are you still the the fastest 100 mile guy in the u.s or <laughs> how does that come yeah yeah i have uh the american record for 100 miles and then uh the world record for distance running 12 and then the fastest documented time on a trail for 100 miles um so yeah still still have those and hopefully Hopefully I can lower them this next year. I've got a couple spots where I'm going to maybe target some, some of that. So uh, yeah, I'm a little bit obsessed with the endurance side of things, but uh, you know, the mute fuel has certainly helped. Good. Great. Cool. And we'll, we will definitely link your Twitter account and your blog to the show notes too. So listeners, if you want to go check out more about Danny, you'll be able to click on those and in the show notes. But uh, other than that, Danny, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great. Uh, Like I said, in the beginning, we like to share the story of the folks who are actually on the ground doing these things, seeing the process, doing the process. You know, sometimes that's the only way to get the truth out of some of this stuff. So thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us. All right. Thanks. Awesome, Danny. Thank you very much. Looking forward to hearing from you again. Yeah, okay. Take care. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.